This holiday season, pay tribute to the people who fought for our freedom to celebrate. Featuring the largest American flag in the region, Spirit Park is now open at National Harbor, honoring active duty military and veterans. Take some time this holiday to remember, offer gratitude, and be inspired by the sacrifices of our service men and women who make our way of life possible. Plan your visit at nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. That's nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. Yeah, it's called conversations with Jeff, not screaming matches. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 you and I do not agree on Calvinism, but look how nice we are to each other. I think it's going to really shock a lot of people, thrill a lot of people. A lot of people are going to have to do some soul searching. It's like you know what? What are you doing? You're spending all your time trying to destroy another Christian because you don't understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. When you should be out there winning people for Jesus, right? Thank you for the job you're doing. Thanks for being willing to address these kind of issues. They're vital to the church. I feel sorry for what's coming your way, but God bless you, man. It's it's a good, healthy conversation, and, and let's keep growing together in the Lord. People won't change unless they hear the truth, though. And so we need to know the truth, uh, speak the truth. And then the last one I would say is that we need to stay in the truth, uh, no matter what the consequences are. Okay, everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Conversations with Jeff. Uh, we got a really, I'm really excited about our guest we've got today. But before we get to that, um, one of the things that uh, we actually just announced a little bit earlier today was uh, is our upcoming online conference called Destroy Social Justice. Uh, we've got a great lineup. Uh, you guys can go to gatekeepersonline.com/slash Destroy Social Justice. We've got Michael Massey, we've got Trevor Loudon, we've got uh, Ken Peters, Mike Spaulding, Thomas Littleton, all the GK guys. Um, we've got a great lineup of speakers that's really going to break down the issue of social justice, um, the history of it, uh, understanding what's actually going on, and then also how to combat it, how to refute it, how to destroy it, that sort of thing. So uh, you guys can head over to gatekeepersonline.com slash destroy social justice. Um, it's going to be $30 to uh, participate in the conference. We're going to be streaming live. But for those of you that are plugged in members, you get access to the conference absolutely free. So if you guys are not members of our plugged in program, you guys can head on over there. It's only 10 bucks a month. You'll get access to all of our video content absolutely free, a lot of extra perks, as well as this conference absolutely free. So Head on over there, gatekeepersonline.com slash plugged in. And the conference is gatekeepersonline.com slash destroy social justice. Uh, I'm really excited about today's guest. Um, our guest is Michael Johns. He was the speechwriter for George H.W. Bush. If I'm remembering correctly, was it H.W. Bush or was it uh, W. Bush? 41, 41. And then you're also the co-founder of the Tea Party. So, I mean, I, I mean, both of those, I mean, that's, those are both really big, really big deals right there. The Tea Party movement was launched really because it was a monopolization of thought, ideas, and political activism on the left in 2009. 
And um, the uh, impact of it, in my view, is, is historical. It's the largest and most significant grassroots political movement in American history. Yeah. Now, 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 and now I'm seeing in the, in the comments really quick that, uh, that in the beginning they weren't able to quite, uh, hear your, uh, your response. So, so you were actually the speechwriter for, uh, Bush 41. Um, right. so, so for everybody that's out there, you guys miss, if you guys miss his answer, that's the answer to that. Um, but what really got your involvement into this whole political world in the beginning? Because I, I always find everybody's story fascinating on how they actually get to where they are now. My involvement and engagement, my activism picked up uh, as a college student at the University of Miami. Shout out to the U. (laughs) (laughs) Very loyal alumnus I am. Uh, But, uh, you know, I grew up in a blue collar area of uh, Pennsylvania. And um, I, um, you know, I had certain impressions here that I think reflect a lot of what Donald Trump's been talking about, about the breakdown of American manufacturing, about how the economy would and uh, government was not really working for working Americans. And so I had that perspective. And then you know, when I arrived in uh, South Florida, uh, many Cuban-American friends really introduced me to the realities of communism. It wasn't that I was oblivious to it. I knew it was bad. I knew it was uh, horrific. I knew it had destroyed lives. I knew it was a threat. But, you know, a lot of the firsthand personal um, stories that were shared with me, particularly about life under Fidel Castro's Cuba, um, led me to get engaged. And I was president of college Republicans at the University of Miami, did a few internships in Washington, D.C., one with congressman from Pennsylvania, another with a great organization called the National Journalism Center, which is part of the Young America's Foundation, which has become increasingly prominent on campuses and whatnot. And, um, and then networked, really, with a lot of the national conservative movement at that time, some names who've gone on to be really big deals. And... Um, my enthusiasm was great, and when I graduated from the University of Miami, I pretty much did a straight line to Washington, D.C., ended up with the Heritage Foundation, where I was uh, editor of their magazine, Policy Review, and then a foreign policy analyst. Yeah. No, no, the interesting thing is, like, when, when you when you hear the, Her- the Heritage Foundation, it's, that's one of those organizations that conservatives, conservatives always look to as – you know, they're a great source of truth, but then you look at mainstream media and they're like, you can't take anything that they say seriously, which then it, it again kind of shows just how polarized things are. I feel like right now is that we can't even agree on like, what's like a valid, a valid source of information, you know? Yeah. I think it becomes very difficult when um, it's not simply we're arguing over what policies are better. Those are region, reasonable um, discussions, but we have just such dramatic, factual uh, impressions that we bring to this debate. And, you know, I mean, like, for instance, if you start out with the impression that Donald Trump is a dictator, a fascist uh, against the Constitution, which I would say just the opposite. He's he's unbelievably adhered to our Constitution and appointed judges that are some of the most strict constitutionalists in our American history. Um, It's tough that, like, where do you go with the conversation from from there? You know, because... Now, all of a sudden, it's, you both personalize the discussion and, in my judgment, you've completely misinterpreted the reality of 63 million Americans who voted for this man because they considered him precisely the sort of leader we need at this time. Yeah. Now, now I kind of want to continue along a little bit with your story as well. So you were, you were with the Heritage Foundation. And then how, yeah. did, how did you go from there to getting involved with 
the presidential elections and being the speechwriter for Bush and that sort of thing. Well, I did some really significant things at the Heritage Foundation for starters, um, even all the way back in college. Uh, I started to get involved in supporting what was called the Reagan Doctrine. Uh, this was Ronald Reagan's foreign policy of support for anti-communist resistance movements around the world. I went actually went out with the Nicaraguan Contras in 1984. I was one of, I think, one of the first Americans ever to visit the Contra base camps. And then once I got to the Heritage Foundation, I started to get more engaged in South Asia and Africa. Um, and, uh, you know, I visited with resistance movements in Cambodia, the Sihanouk re uh, resistance movement there, and then also with the uh, anti-communist movements in Angola, led then by Jonas Savimbi. This is now like a whole chapter ago in American history, but it was a real vital one because while the Cold War is described, you know, as a Cold War, it had hot war components. And in many ways, the message that Ronald Reagan appropriately sent that I fully supported being one that we would not allow countries to fall under the Soviet domain, uh, under the Soviet conquest without resistance, kind of changed a lot of the thinking inside the Kremlin and inside Moscow. And ultimately, that snowballed to a point where the Cold War itself, um, the Berlin Wall itself, all of the manifestations of Soviet communism became kind of indefensible. Yeah, yeah, which you know, not sustainable. Right, right. And so, so, so then, so then you worked on that, and then from there, right. then you you started working along with uh, with Bush and the White House and that sort of thing, right? Yeah, I went to work for um, so from Heritage, I went to work for a governor from New Jersey, Thomas Kane. He was someone I kind of admired growing up in the uh, suburban Philadelphia region, very was a prominent political Republican then. Uh, as you may know, he went on to run the 9-11 Commission. Uh, after 9-11, came to some really sensible conclusions through that bipartisan commission, by the way, a lot of Democrats on it. Uh, many of those recommendations still have not been adopted, but I worked with him on a broad range of issues. Some of his first engagements in foreign policy and national security, good amount of uh, work on um, education. He uh, chaired Jack Kemp's Low Income Housing Commission. I served as a liaison to that. He was on the board of the National Endowment for Democracy. I worked with him on that. Uh, so we had a really close relationship. But now on top of everything, he ran uh, Bush Quail um, in um, New Jersey. So um, the point of entry for me was I wrote a New York Times op-ed for him on why I thought Bush over Clinton deserved four more years. Um, the political prospects of President Bush at that point were looking increasingly bleak, even though he had after the Kuwait uh, liberation approval ratings over 90%. They had deteriorated predominantly because of a recession and perception of him abandoning his no new taxes pledge. I had some good messaging. They were looking for some messaging. I went down there, it came together real quickly, and it was a great honor to um, to serve him. I think he was an exceptional president for that moment. Um, I know there's many in the Trump base who cannot stand the Bushes. Uh, and I will say in 2016, I um, was a day one Trump supporter. I um, pointed out some of the deficiencies in Jeb Bush's candidacy, some of the deficiency even in Ted Cruz's uh, campaign, which frankly, our Tea Party movement got Ted Cruz elected. In some ways got Rubio and Rand Paul and uh, Mike Lee elected as well. So um, these weren't personal to me. I just had 
experience and an instinct that Trump was um, from a backbone standpoint, precise and a political tactic standpoint, what we needed at this moment. And he was kind of the next logical manifestation of our Tea Party movement, in my judgment. He supported our Tea Party movement strongly. It's not widely known. He spoke at Tea Party event in South Florida in 2011, was very impressed with it. And um, his campaign, obviously, in 2016, had all the populist characteristics that have um, characterized our political involvement since 2009. Yeah. And, and I kind of want to, you know, come back to, you know, Trump, you know, going alongside with the, with the Tea Party and that sort of thing. But really quick, just want to kind of, you know, come come back around with your story as well of, you know, you coming in and, you know, being a part of the Tea Party, essentially from like the ground floor and being one of the co-founders and that sort of thing. I mean, that's, that's a big deal, but also that, that was a big movement, I think, that really revolutionized the Republican Party and no really, doubt. and really laid the groundwork for an actual Trump candidacy and ultimately becoming president. I mean, it, that's pretty crazy when you think, when you can kind of follow that along to its logical conclusion like that. Yeah, I'm not sure all the dots have been connected kind of in the mainstream media coverage of the Tea Party movement, but I think you worded it precisely correctly. Um, you know, a few things about this that I've said repeatedly is if you go back to February of 2009, um, Rick Santelli had his famous rant on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Um, I had run investor relations for a, a healthcare company out of um, Long Island and publicly traded and was a habitual watcher of CNBC. I happened to watch that that morning. I wasn't alone in it. We had a little network of conservatives brought together this phone call. Um, I've seen reported that there were up to 50 people on that call, but it was more like 18, 20, you know, something like that. Um, and among those who were on the call um, is important, I think, because it could completely debunks this idea that we're sort of an astroturf billionaire funded movement. I think I was the only one who had had any formal political experience or exposure. And I'm talking about like literally anything, like no one had even like helped a school board candidate get elected. So, um, you know, we came out of that, I'll be honest, we didn't go into it thinking that we were doing something that was so historical as it's completely emerged to be, but that we were going to at least have one day on April 15th tax day of, 2009, a series of national rallies across the country that would galvanize, call attention to uh, three principles that we laid out, adherence, the need for adherence to the Constitution, limited government, and lower taxes, taxed enough already, TEA. So uh, the very simple principles, really. I mean, when you think about um, a lot of the complexities of American public policy, part of the genius of what I think we did was we made it pretty easy for people to feel comfortable affiliating with our movement. And then also it was kind of a supply and demand dynamic in the sense that I felt, and I knew simply because I was traveling around the country a lot, um, it, you know, in a political context and in, in a private sector context and in a personal context, I was seeing the frustration the American people had. And I'm not talking about people that have committed their lives to political engagement. I'm talking about everyday working Americans were were not just concerned, they were scared, very and legitimately scared about the direction of the country, about its abandoning some of the foundations of it all, um, the founding principles. 
And, um, you know, quite honestly, uh, I've been a Republican my whole life. I've never not voted for a Republican. Oh, um, you know, I believe, you know, in the Republican Party, but the Republican Party at that time, to be honest, was not offering the level of gra- of opportunity for people to become involved politically. And their people wanted to do something. They weren't sure what, what to do. Many of them didn't have, you know, the sort of experience that would lead them to be able to run a campaign or recruit a candidate or fundraise or, or even organize a rally. But collectively, all of these people, when you put them all together, and ultimately we're talking about tens of millions of people who have engaged in this Tea Party, in the Tea Party movement, uh, we found that the passion, the energy, and the assortment of skill sets added up to the sort of thing that really was able to transform the government. And then just finally, you cannot underestimate the impact um, because so you have 2000, January 2009, Obama comes in. He has a perceived political mandate. Uh, he's got Nancy Pelosi running the House. He's got Harry Reid, a Democrat from Nevada, running the Senate. He's got all of the media um, loving him, infatuated with him, unwilling to cover him, forget critically, even objectively, unwilling to ask him even the most basic of questions. Um, a, academia completely in the hands of the left. Um, the, you know, Hollywood, obviously, music culture, everything basically monopolized by these guys um, who probably represent, at the end of the day, a fairly small fraction of the country's political sentiment. So this, you know, what Nixon called the silent majority um, was very underrepresented. And, you know, I think what we did was offer the opportunity to come in. So then 2010, we, we, I, I made a lot of promises. Okay. And I'm going to be honest with you, be straight up and tell you, I was nervous about being able to deliver on them, but I knew we weren't going to get a movement of any magnitude or, or impact if we didn't promise return on people's time, investment, and, and engagement. So I said we were going to take our government back, and our movement said we were going to take our government back. And by that, we didn't mean win a few elections. We meant take it back. So 2010, we went on. We um, unseated. Uh, we we you know took back the House 2010. We said we would fire Nancy Pelosi. We did. If you think about the, just the impact of that alone, that blocked – um, Obama's legislative agenda, his ability to deliver on some of these legislative promises. Um, and, you know, then 2014, we came back and said, look, we're going to take the Senate back. And, um, you know, so we had 60 some Republicans in 2010 who ran as self-identified Tea Party Republicans. You know, a lot that people know. Some people don't know. Like Mike Pompeo was elected as a Tea Party Republican, um, a great who was a great member of Congress. And, um, you know, and then 2014, you know, you had Rubio, you had Rand Paul, Mike Lee, Ted Cruz, and, you know, a good number of Republicans who incorporated the Tea Party movement into their their state U.S. Senate races. And we were able to fire Harry Reid and take back the Senate, which then, uh, you know, kind of made it more difficult for Obama from the standpoint of appointments and judges. Um, so that was that that was important. And then the least covered component is what I just mentioned, is that it didn't stop there because Donald Trump announced his candidacy June 16th, 2015. All of this was just, you know, fresh in his mind. He had witnessed it personally in speaking to um, 
a very large Tea Party rally in um, uh, Palm Beach County in South Florida. Uh, he knew it was it was impactful. I think he believed in the tactics of the movement. He saw the effect it was having and, you know, essentially ran a campaign much like we did, which was one of saying we love the Republican Party enough to want to resist it and take it back because it was making mistakes. It was losing its identity. It was betraying its commitments and promises to the American people. It was starting to not be able to differentiate itself from Democrats. It was not really having tangible meaning in the American people. Its brand was being tainted as one of elitism and disengagement and Washington insider approaches. And uh, we challenged all of that. We, you know, I, which is one of the reasons I've always opposed third party candidates. I'm like, look, this is about taking back the Republican party. If we can't take back the Republican party. We can't take back the country, you know? So don't get, you know, we may not like the two party system, but taking back the Republican party is a lot easier than building third party and, and winning that way. So I think, you know, much like Trump, you know, we, we kind of re helped redefine the Republican party. Um, and then Trump, you know, really ran a campaign that you just, it's never said enough. He ran against the Republican party establishment and, um, and took the Republican party nomination and so doing. And he did it through grassroots, huge rallies. Every, that's one recent memory, but very much kind of a 2.0 version of a Tea Party movement. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, it is really crazy looking at the parallels between, the Tea Party and how and how you guys really campaigned and did things and really operated and then how Trump did things. It's almost like he just took a cue from you guys like, well, I'll just take it to the extreme. And he really and he really ran with it. I mean, everything from not really having a whole lot of political you know, background and experience and that sort of thing, like like you were mentioning before with most of the leadership, you know, to, you know, doing the grassroots campaign, doing the events, doing like X, Y, and Z taken taken on the establishment Republicans. I mean, that's what everybody's been wanting. I mean, when you when you looked at Mitt Romney and John McCain when they were running against Obama, I feel like a lot of us that were truly conservative were just sitting there like, we're going to vote for the guy. But I mean, yeah. you know, like voted, there wasn't voted, any excitement. Yeah, I, I voted for both those guys, obviously, and you know, I supported them publicly. But you know, quite honestly. In 2000, I feel especially about 2012, even you know, with Romney. I mean, had he reached out at that point to the Tea Party movement and engaged them, uh, you had a, a seven-figure number of registered Republicans who never showed up to vote that day. Um, it was the difference between winning and losing. And unfortunately, this was reflective of the, the dilemma that I'm describing within the Republican Party, as it was run ultimately by consultants people who, um, for whom this is a profession, who make a lot of money, whether we win or lose, aren't particularly ideological, you know, um, and uh, are committed to politics as a business, not politics as a means for making the lives of American people better. And, um, you know, so that really was kind of the sentiment that I think we were all going through back then. And I think had... Um, Romney reached out to the Tea Party movement and had there been enthusiasm for his candidacy, and I'll be honest, there wasn't, um, could have been a very different outcome. And um, I would say, you know, while McCain's candidacy predated our Tea Party movement, there certainly were the, the begin. this is, that was kind of the moment when we, there started to be the rumblings of its creation with the bank bailouts and, um, 
you know, Obama's bailouts basically were kind of a motivating factor. And um, he could have tapped into a lot of those energy, too. So I completely agree with Trump. I think those guys were weak candidates. Um, And um, I kind of understood their strategies at the time. But let's just be honest and say they did. They were not effective. Donald Trump was. Um, And I don't want to take anything away from Trump and saying, like, look, he just kind of plagiarized the Tea Party movement because he is, you know, like he's the man in my view. And it's one of the reasons I endorsed him day one. I knew that Um, he he has a spine of steel. And uh, I knew that the correlation of things were coming together, that he wasn't going to abandon his conservative commitments. I took a lot of heat for that, too, by the way. I mean, national leadership of our Tea Party movement was not united behind Trump day one. There were a lot of people just simply because we had gotten to know, you know, Cruz, Rubio, Rand Paul, like they were like, we knew them first name basis. So all these guys, you know, because of the familiarity, wanted to gravitate to that. Um, and those guys are all great senators. I don't think they were right for the presidency right now. I'm not sure they would have won either. Um, so, you know, that's the conclusion I came to. But importantly, uh, there was some polling throughout the campaign on the primary, and um, Trump led from day one and, and only expanded among self-identified Tea Party voters in the 2016 uh, primary. Yeah, well, you know, what do you what do you think really contributed to Trump really, like you're saying, from day one practically beating out guys like Ted Cruz and Rubio and that sort of thing within the Tea Party movement? Because I mean, those guys are. Tea Party guys. I mean, what was it about Trump that you feel like where the Tea Party was like, that's our guy over one of our own? It was um, the 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 mottos of this campaign of America first that the American voters wanted to see. But in, in more granular detail, it was his willingness to put two big, big issues, trade and immigration at the forefront of his candidacy. And these were two issues that are very troubling to uh, the American voters and had been completely neglected by the Republican Party before Trump. So one of the reasons there was such pushback on it is people didn't, they were just used to not wanting to do anything on these issues. You know, people say, well, I'm against Trump's tariffs, but they have no plan to get rid of China's theft of our intellectual property. China's own tariffs. You know, they're, they're against tariffs on our side. I don't know why they don't share the hostility toward China's tariffs. It's like the environment. You know, if you're going to, you know, be an environmental activist, wouldn't you start with China? We're the, the worst polluter in the world. No one talks about China. I mean, I haven't heard China out of this Greta uh, girl's um, mouth since she started to become involved. Um, so his, his willingness to talk in honest terms about legal immigration about the H-1B visa process, about immigration um, starting to be different, not helping the country like it had historically, about it taking American jobs, about outsourcing, about bad trade agreements, including China, including NAFTA, including you know the TPP, all of that, uh, including a lot of the um, losses that we were sustaining in um, world trade uh, litigation. You know, these were things that struck right to the, the heart of blue collar working Americans. They had been wanting us to talk about that for a long time. He was really the only one to do it at the very beginning. And then, you know, as it showed signs of working, of course, everybody kind of tried to jump on. But, you know, to me, it was like, no, this really burns in this guy's veins. And that, you know, 
I know how I worked in Washington enough to know, like if you, if you're not, if it's not burning in your veins, the pressures are going to come to you and you're going to capitulate and um, you're going to trade off. You're going to compromise. You're going to sacrifice. You're not going to stand up when it's, when you need to stand up. And uh, you know, he's, no, I'm not being a complete apologist for his presidency to date. I think there have been mistakes. Um, some of them are kind of just a lack of knowledge about Washington and the way it works. But from the agenda standpoint, and even from the promises kept standpoint, I'm just immensely impressed with this man. Yeah. You know, and, and what's interesting is like there was like the Never Trump movement. I mean, there's still it's still kind of fizzling, fizzling along. But I feel like a lot of the mainstream never Trumpers have kind of come around and they're like, yeah, everything's kind of panning out, you know, because they had they had these, you know, concerns and that sort of thing. So like my podcast and most of my audience are within kind of like the conservative evangelical world. And, right. I, and I feel like a lot of the leadership within the evangelical world are still kind of anti-Trump, which is really interesting, like the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest denomination in the country. You know, you've got big organizations like the Gospel Coalition that are spouting, you know, ideas that almost sound like it would be like AOC or Bernie Sanders. But traditionally, that was like the automatic conservative Republican voting bloc. And so it's almost like there's even like a civil war going on right now within evangelicalism on Trump and, you know, the future of the evangelical movement within the conservative part, the conservative movement. And so I feel like we're having to figure this out of, do we vote for, do we vote for Trump or do we vote against him because we don't like his morals, you know? And, and I think that that's kind so, of a, lo a lot of the big battle going on right now. I think we litigated that whole question in 2016. I don't believe there's any one of the 63 million Americans who voted for Trump who has learned anything in the last few years that's going to lead them to change their mind. I also, in my own engagement with evangelical sort of politics, as it were, feel it's been very much like the union situation. We've had disparities between leadership and then actual membership. So from the standpoint of where's the evangelical vote, you know, and by the way, Ralph Reed, he's one guy that I, I go way back with when I was you know, college Republican. So I worked like with, I worked, been familiar with this whole thing from the very beginning. He was, you know, Time Magazine, the right hand of God, I think was that the headline, one of the greatest Time Magazine headlines ever. Um, and I know like evangelicals, they're, they want conservative judges. They want to make advancements on our pro-life agenda. They're immensely concerned about the, um, particularly this, this, late term abortion uh, issues and things happening like with, uh, you know, Virginia um, and uh, even, you know, post-birth um, terminations. I mean, some really outrageous thinking that's out there with, it reflects how radical the pro-abortion activist uh, organizations have become in the country. Um, you know, I think they're concerned you know, on every one of these things, Trump sort of lines up, you know, and <clears throat> I see people, uh, on the grassroots level who say, look, Trump was chosen by God. Trump was blessed by God. Like, and, and then others will laugh at something like that. But what's so outrageous about that ultimately, really? I mean, do you, you know, if you don't believe that God is interacting in some way in our lives, that kind of defies all the foundations of Christianity. And, uh, you know, we, we believe this is a, is a divinely blessed country. Well, that means God's paying attention to the United States of America. I'm sorry if that makes some people uncomfortable, but I believe it's true. 
And I do believe that there was some element of this at play, um, at least as it relates to the inner spirit of people, you know, the way um, it worked through people's hearts and minds, you know, that led them to sort of maybe swallow some of those concerns that you would experience with any one who'd spent a few decades in Manhattan and, a, you know, as a billionaire in Manhattan and, and say, you know, are we electing some, uh, you know, moral, are we electing the Pope here? Or are we electing someone to run our government? You know, we're electing someone to run our government here. And, um, and you know, I, I think he's learned lessons in the past. And honestly, a lot of the mistakes he made were mistakes made by someone who never envisioned becoming politically involved, you know? So it wasn't like he sat around and said, hey, look, I'm going to have to explain all this stuff 20 years from now. He never envisioned. He had his, his life was made. He sacrificed all of it to get involved and take these daily attacks, sacrifice all the money he was making, um, and um, foregoes even his salary as a as president. It's one hundred and some thousand dollar salary, you know. So I just don't think he anticipated ever being where he is. But thankfully, um, he did it because I don't know if we would have survived four years of Hillary Clinton. And I'm not even sure with some of these other Republicans if they would have fared well in the general election or if they would have done much differently than Hillary Clinton would have done. Yeah. Well, you know, like, and you even think about guys like Ted Cruz and Rubio and Rand Paul. Like, I, I really liked Cruz and Paul during the primaries. But what was interesting is I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, okay, so they're very principled. You know, they, they, they know what they want. But at the same time, could they actually get anything done? Whereas Trump when you think about it, all he's doing is wheeling and dealing and he's trying to figure out a way to, to get things passed. So he understands the right kind of compromise. Whereas I feel like Republicans historically, they did the wrong kind of compromise where they'd give up stuff and get nothing in return. Whereas Trump is finally coming around and he's like, well, I'll give you this, but you've got to give me something back, possibly even more than what I'm giving you kind of a thing. And I feel like we would not have had that had, had Cruz or Rand Paul been president. Well, plus it's also, you know, um, let me say, like, I hold all of these guys in high esteem. Like, I don't want this in any way misinterpreted. Uh, I think these are some of the greatest political minds of our time. These aren't just politicians. They're, they're principled people. I think the world of Marco Rubio, I think the world of Rand Paul, um, I think um, the world of Ted Cruz, all right? And um, each one of them has sort of had their own experiences uh, they are, with the exception of Rand Paul, who's a physician uh, beforehand, more or less professional politicians. I don't think they've had the exposure to this grassroots sentiment that I'm describing. And so there's two ways to look at 2016 and what's happening even today is that you have a top-down political structure where, where we elect somebody because they kind of look the part and they have the, you know, the credentials and like Hillary Clinton, they're next in line or perceived to be. And then everybody sort of falls in line with that leader or what happened in 2016. You have all this sentiment out there where people are sitting around the dinner table saying, why are we getting ripped off by China? Why aren't we talking about these, uh, um, you know, millions of illegals that are poured across our southern border? And the fact that for 30 years we've been, we've been talking about stopping them, done anything about it. Um, why aren't we why are we bringing in uh you know, Indians and Pakistanis and, and forcing American workers to train them on their jobs so they can be terminated 
and have their jobs replaced by foreigners. Like so many of these, why are we outsourcing so many things? Why is NATO, South Korea, not paying their share and helping defend against the threats that they clearly do threat in Russia and in um, North Korea and in China to some extent? These were all like logical things that people were talking about. So like this was a bottom up kind of process where people are saying, look, these are the issues we want out of national leadership. And I think Trump, you know, I think similar to my own experience, I think he was a person who had spent enough time outside of the beltway and, and around working Americans that he got all that. And, you know, actually, if you go back and look at the things he's been talking about for decades, um, his positions have evolved on a few issues, like on the pro-life issue, for instance, but on the core economic issues, including trade policy, um, he's been remarkably consistent. Yeah. Now, now what, one of the things that's been interesting to me about like uh, people responding to a lot of Trump's positions, like whether it's illegal immigration or dealing with China, is the argument is always – well, you know, if if we combat China and their tariffs and how they're ripping us off and that sort of thing, if we start putting tariffs on them and we stop, you know, them from importing and exporting and all that kind of stuff with us, it's going to start raising our prices, right? And so, and and then the same thing happens with Mexico. It's like, well, if if we cut off all the illegals, that's going to raise prices because they're working out in the fields. And I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, they're working out they're working out in the fields for less than minimum wage. That's why the fruit is so cheap. Like we can't compete with less than minimum wage because we're not legally allowed to compete with less than minimum wage. So it's like we yeah. we got we got to have a solution to this. Well, I also feel like it's a debate where we're punching at air because it's not like it's Trump's position versus some other coherent plan to get rid of all these problems with China and other. It's not just China; it's EU, it's other countries. Um, you know, for thirty years, these trade deficits have just descended. Okay, if you go back to like 1980, there was a point where we basically had a neutral trade uh, balance with China. That escalated, particularly through the 90s. Trump's right when we say are these unfair trade practices built the Chinese economy. It's now the second largest economy in the world, and yet they continue to be exempt by th- from things like the Paris Agreement saying they're still a developing economy. It's ridiculous. Um, and he was uh, exactly right about this and it's already you you can see it happening okay because you've got high level chinese delegations in washington dc okay basically trying to get deals done that never happened for 30 years because why because we never asked for it no one you know we'd say hey could you stop ripping off our intellectual property and they'd say yeah sure and then it'd just be more of the same and there'd be no ramifications to any of it uh, they'd manipulate the, the, their currency for the purposes of, of, of trade. We complain about it a little bit in some of these summits or, or heads of state meetings, but they never did anything about it. And they never did anything about it because they never saw any ramifications to it. Now, all of a sudden, billions of dollars of agricultural products they're promising to purchase because Trump has put the pressure on. And I believe, like, you've got to look. This is the only comparison I can think of is. Throughout the Cold War, when we like deployed missiles to to NATO and we we took a stomp, we were you know building up our military. People on the left would say were that the, these were warmonger positions, and I would always respond as any conservative would respond: No, peace through strength. The the recipe for create it's it's counterintuitive perhaps, but the 
the the key to maintaining the peace is being able to fight and win a war. That's what deters aggression and nothing else. Nothing else deters aggression. Not the best of words, not appeasement, uh, not some, you know, wishing, not knocking on wood. None of that works. Same thing here with trade policy. Um, the key to getting no tariffs potentially in trade relationships with major trading partners like China is putting the pressure on them now so we can no negotiate agreements where both of these uh, tariffs come down. And of course, the problems with China are not just the tariffs. I mean, you really need to dive into all of the things. China is a very, very, um, it's led by very smart people. Okay. Another thing Trump's totally right about. They are, they are miles ahead of us from the standpoint of the way they think strategically. They're long-range thinkers. They're thinking about where the country's going to be 100, 150, 200 years from now. We're thinking about where it's going to be 12 weeks from now. So it's a very different mindset, and it's sort of understandable that we've fallen behind. Um, and, um, you know, ultimately, the only way is to put this pressure on them. And we should be very concerned about what they're doing, and not just on the trade front, but I think militarily, too. If you're oblivious to what's going on in the South China Sea, if you're oblivious to what China's doing with all of these Silk Road initiatives and putting uh, the developing world in a great amount of debt to China in exchange for these development projects, which are inherently corrupt, uh, where uh, non-democratic leaders are being paid off immense amount of monies, you know, and, and their own, their assets, their ports, their highways, their infrastructure is being placed up as collateral that can be taken by China at any moment. You know, that, these are some of the biggest issues of the time right now because they really reflect a very serious threat to the world and to the United States of America. Yeah, and it's it's really crazy how the Democrats and the left, and you know, have been, and even some some of the establishment Republicans too, but they they've really been opposing a lot of this kind of stuff. And I feel like that kind of leads into the conversation around the opposition to Trump, because I feel like a lot of times the opposition to him isn't necessarily principled. It's that he takes a position. And then the opposition's like, well, we're just going to take the opposite position as opposed – because, I mean, he's saying a lot of the same things now that Bill Clinton said when he was president. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to say, you know, I, this might be – you know, there's some things that Schumer said on – Schumer supported Trump on China with a few – at least tweets rhetorically. Uh, I, you know, I got to throw him some props for that. Um, it's uh, important. I remember in the 90s. I think in the late 90s, I left. I was out of D.C., but I came back and um, was at a conference down there. And this is the first time I ever heard Nancy Pelosi speak. And I'm going to be honest, I didn't really know much about her. I mean, I knew she represented the Bay Area. But she got up and gave this beautiful speech about Hong Kong and about human rights in China and about the abuses and about the suffocation of religious liberty and about the uh, you know, the the complete annihilation of national identity because China, like the Soviet Union, you know, is a, a combination of ethnicities that Beijing is basically trying to, uh, I guess the, the, the easiest, the, the most benefit, the um, one way to word it would be is to, to ease it into some sort of national identity. But, you know, they have like 2 million Uyghur Muslims that are being detained right now in re-education camps. This is one of the greatest human rights crises of, of our life. No one's talking about it. 
and we're sure not doing anything about it. And in fairness to Trump, you would say, well, well why aren't you bringing this stuff into China? Because he wants to get the China deal done because America first means America first. Um, but, you know, I just I think these are issues that really require our attention and they should be positions that the conservative movement champions. Um, and I do believe, like, if we're looking for opportunities for bipartisanship, that Democrats, at least rhetorically, have historically seen some issues here, too. I think they share some of the sentiments. Yeah, yeah. And it, what's, what's really interesting to me is I is I just feel like, to a certain degree, the a lot of the opposition to Trump ends up being just a way to campaign and raise more money, right? It's not because they have a principled opposition to what he's saying. It's just they have something to fight against. Yeah. It, you know, I feel I, like I feel like that's the whole political game to a certain degree from a lot of these establishment guys is just get reelected. You got to have a fight in order to raise money. And these, are, let me just give you these, this is this is a Gallup poll that just came out this morning. So I haven't even talked about this publicly except this with you be the first time. This is um, comparing Jan, the sentiments of the American people January of um, 2017, right? So the the end of the Obama administration with today. And every one of these metrics, the, the American people feel the country is moving in the right direction. Okay, so the state of the nation's economy, um, 46% thought it was going well in 2017, 68% think it's going well today. That's a leap of 22%. Nation's security from terrorism, 50% felt positive about it um, at the end of the Obama administration, 68% feel positive about it now. Um, a leap of 18%, likely because Trump's exterminated ISIS, Trump's taken out the leader of ISIS, Trump's taken out the leader of the IRGC from Iran. You know, there's no denying that we're a safer country as a result of these things. And he's built up the military, obviously. Uh, nation's military strength and, and preparedness, critical metric. Um, 66% were comfortable with it in January of 17, 81% are positive about it today. It's a 15% leap. Um, the state of race relations, right? Remember, because this is one of the things that Obama was going to fix in the country. Remember the beer summit, all these things? Well, the reality is race relations really didn't improve at all. They might have even deteriorated a tad on his watch. Um, a very small percentage of people felt positive about that back in January of uh, 17, only 22%. That has now increased to 36%. So on Donald Trump's watch, this president who has been falsely accused of racism, as almost anybody on the right politically has been accused of, because that's the fallback position when they can't argue on policy issues, has actually improved by 14 points the the perspective of the American people on that issue. And I just, it just goes on from there. I mean, the crime issue improved by 9%. Um, the position of blacks and other racial minorities in the nation is improved um, also 9%. The way income and wealth are distributed, which I know is a big concern of many Americans, but it's improved 8% since uh, Trump's in. The opportunity for a person in this nation to get ahead by working hard, 66% in January 17, 72% now, plus six. So, you know, and the overall quality of life in the country is 84% uh, positive. Those are the sort of metrics that lead you to look and say, 
this is Donald Trump's election to lose because he won in 16 without any of those accomplishments. He's going to run in 2020 being able to say, I promised I would do these things. And I did promises made promises delivered. Yeah, which 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 is huge because I feel like again for all all of the never Trumpers, which is a really big movement when he when he was running in 2016, it was like he's saying all these things. He's just going to be like the rest of the politicians, and he's not going to follow through. He's following through. A lot of the never Trumper leaderships have come have come around. So you know, hopefully, a lot of the people that were following along within that movement are coming around too. I know there's still kind of some of the the crazy guys like Bill Crystal and some of the other guys that are just going to be like. Die hard, never Trumper till till death. But at the I same, I don't know what they're doing. I, I've known Bill Crystal for thirty years. I worked with him in the Bush White House when he was uh, chief of staff to Dan Quayle. Uh, I would have at, w- at one point, if you had asked me, I would have said I considered him a mentor. Right? Mm-hmm. I've been impressed with his brilliance, his genius, his art. He's an articulate guy. He's politically sophisticated. He's approachable. I like everything about him. And then all of a sudden, it's like he went crazy in this whole thing. And I've, I've, you know, I've been publicly critical of that whole lot of people because I ultimately think they placed their own careers and their own self-interest in politics and their own inside the Beltway position above the welfare of the country. I'll be that blunt. That's a pretty serious allegation. But I, I just don't see what other conclusion you can reach because everything that we said we wanted to do uh, from a conservative movement, this this guy's doing. I mean, I looked at the president speaking at the March for Life rally earlier this week or over the weekend. You know, for years, uh, I was a champion of Reagan uh, throughout that entire eight years. But Reagan never had the political temperament to go and actually speak to March for Life. He would always, There would always be some excuse why he had to either send in a video or appear by video why? Because, you know, at the end of the day, he didn't want to get too close to the pro-life movement. This president got in there and did it. Uh, he's been forthright. You know, we've been funding Planned Parenthood forever. He's he's one who's like really taken the stand on doing this. Mexico City policy repealed. Um, the, you know, I mean, I just think like he's been a person of his word. And that was one of the criticisms when I first came out for Trump is, you know, the social conservatives. Um you know, allegedly he'll he'll never keep his word on these issues, and uh, he, he, I just don't th- see how you could be any more pleased with the position he's taken in defense of unborn life. Yeah, you, you know, and what, what's inter- what's interesting is that you know, so um, on our website we had just uh, posted an article. I believe it was on Saturday from JD Rucker, who was talking about um, after President Trump's speech at the March for Life um, event. That, you know, basically, if you are a person of faith or you're a Christian, you essentially, you, you, you've got to vote for the guy when you compare what he's doing versus what the Democrats are pushing for, which is basically abortion until birth, sometimes after birth, which is like insanity. But, but one, one of the criticisms that I'm seeing from a lot of people within the evangelical side of things is, well, the government is still funding Planned Parenthood, what, half a billion dollars or something like that. And right. and so they're saying Trump is just as bad as the Democrats. He's just playing the game to try to get the to get the pro-lifers. So how, how do how do we deal with with that? Well, in fairness, you know, um, which, you know, I, as much as I am like behind this president from day one, I also try to be objective in my analysis. I think it's important for the American people to understand it. 
I think a lot of momentum was wasted in those first two years. I mean, we had the House, we had the Senate, we had the administration. Uh, Reince Priebus comes in as chief of staff, and um, he was represented the mindset that, that there was no political temperament to do these things. Well, that's the exact time when you do these things. When you have that honeymoon period, you have the momentum, you told the American people you were going to do it, you do it, you do it. So we go through two years, we have not $1 allocated for a, for a border wall and no cuts in funding to um, Planned Parenthood abortion uh, industry, which is what it is. Um, so that's very concerning, you know, as is the fact that, you know, the administration part of draining the swamp means you got to change the people. So you, if you keep these Obama holdovers in and you have vacancies, you know, one guy as great as he is from the Oval Office can do a lot, but he can't do everything. You need people in these departments and agencies that are loyal and are competent, both those things, loyal and competent, and, and are going to execute in delivering them. So you have Rex Torson, who comes in as the Secretary of State, who is, who is defending the Iran Agreement how is that possible? This was the primary foreign policy plank of the president. All these competent foreign policy experts, we put you know, somebody in who's a critic, who, who's, who's telling Trump you can't get out of this, who's defending the Paris environmental agreement. To me, that's, uh, and, and I'm not even holding him responsible because I think it was bad counsel that he got from other people. You know, but ultimately, um, you got to change that if you're going to drain this thing. And there's still a lot of work that needs to be done there. And it's not, you know, something, it's, something, it's uncomfortable to talk about because, you know, we want to be supportive and we are supportive. But, um, you know, it, it, it's difficult for me to get up there and explain why we're still putting half a billion dollars into Planned Parenthood three years into this administration. Yeah. Well, that and, was... we, and we still have no border wall. I Boy. understand the frustrations. I'm not like of the, the mindset of people who've given – you know, like there's a hand, you know, I'm not going to name the names, but, you know, you know, certain uh, nonfiction authors who are best selling people, right? These guys have a whole other game going. It's not really about political reality. Most of them haven't worked in Washington. They don't understand how difficult it is to get stuff done. You got to be at least conscious of that and have some patience about it. But, you know, ultimately, like, yes, we need to deliver on this thing. So I was pleased with the judicial ruling. It's going to show us the ability to, to allocate some military funds toward the the wall, because I think it's hugely important that President Trump get up in Charlotte this summer when he accepts the nomination and, and that wall construction um, and tangible progress on it is one of the uh, accomplishments that he can check off. And that and he's going to check that off in addition to tax cuts that he delivered on. I mean, just the cut in his corporate rate, hugely important, the simplification of the tax code, regulatory cuts. Um, you know, overhauling a trade agreement as he promised, progress on trade relationships with China, progress on military burden sh sharing with NATO and um, South Korea and others, uh, tangible progress potentially with North Korea, return of American hostages um, the world over, movement of the, the embassy uh, in Israel to Jerusalem, a very important uh, symbolic act at least. Uh, closer relationships with Israel than we've had um, in the last administration, which treated Netanyahu very poorly. Um, and I could go on for half an hour. I mean, this guy's delivered an awful lot, and he's delivered it, uh, you know, with a lot of people trying to stop him. 
Yeah. Well, you know, and and I think I think it is important too that you know it shows to a certain degree your intellectual honesty in this in the sense that you're willing to critique critique the guy despite the fact that you totally support him. And I and I feel like that's what I feel like we need more of right now in the political world because I feel like right now we're so polarized and everybody's just either on team A or team B. And if you're on team A, you have to support every single thing that that team does. And the same thing goes for the other way. And it's like, why can't we just call balls and strikes? Let's say this is right. This is wrong. But when push comes to shove, we're going to have to pick who we think is going to be closest to our ideals as opposed to just saying, well, he's not a hundred percent. So I'm not going to vote for the guy. Yeah. And you know, to me, it's like, if you want the president to be successful, this is an issue he's got to address. Now, a few people have brought it up, but not, you know, it's not the public clamor for it that there should be. And this is basically like, look, we let Trump be Trump. We want, you know, day one Trump people need to be in this administration. They need to be running this administration. Look, I'm just looking at, you know, earlier today on the Bolton thing, okay, as it relates to the impeachment. Okay, so the New York Times comes out basically reveals this whole thesis of what he purportedly is going to say in this yet-to-be-released book. Just coincidentally, it's released on the day that uh, the pre-order of the book's available. But I want to tell you something. I don't – and then uh, his publisher and and the the PR firm around it came out and said, hey, look, we weren't behind those leaks. And I thought about that for a second. I said, you know what? They might be right about that because – that book has been submitted to the administration to be vetted over classified information, which means the same people who've been leaking literally, you know, contents of, of conversations with heads of state, information on inside policy deliberations. People are writing, you know, anonymous books that are still in this administration. Those are the people that are going through the Bolton book. And if you know, if you're not tuned into the fact that it's quite possible and even probable that one of those guys picks up the phone to one of his pals at the New York Times and says, this is what Bolton says about Ukraine. You know, I don't think you're being straight up about the realities. In my, in my view, you need an administration that's filled with people that are trusting, trustworthy, aligned with your agenda, and are not going to undermine it. You're leaking information. You're criticizing the public. The, the president anonymously, you know, I'm tired of saying, and, you know, how many of these stories do you see where it's like, you know, five, six uh, anonymous sources in the administration confirmed, boom, 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 boom. And it's all these, pol- the, all these statements designed to undermine the man. So these aren't even people that are neutral on the president. These are people in the administration, presumably political appointees who, who, uh, you know, actively are opposing his agenda. Yeah. Which, which is crazy. And I, and I think also dealing with, you know, like Bolton, and, you know, and it was interesting. So I was watching ABC News and this earlier today and they were talking about the whole Bolton book and all that kind of stuff. And they're saying this is a bombshell. You know, this is, you know, this proves that, you know, he should be impeached and going down the list, right? And going down the line of what they're saying. And the interesting thing is like, okay, so let's just hypothetically say that he did say it. Then we're going to have to see, was it hearsay? You know, which every single, you know, person who was testifying before, before the house, everything was either hearsay or it was probably that, or I assumed or whatever it is, or does he actually have factual evidence? And that has not been stated yet. For a fact, he, in the last few months of his role on the National Security Council, he was very much out of the loop. And, um, 
I'm not sure that he's a credible fact witness on this, and I'm sure that he holds some animosity for the way his affiliation with the administration ended. These are some notes I made for another purpose. I'm just going to walk through this because I, I haven't seen anyone summarize this quite like this, but I actually went through all of the House proceedings and, and the witnesses. So I started to say, you know, just objectively, like, let's assume you're not a Trump defender or a Trump critic. You're just looking at this and saying, is there anything here? Okay, so, the, so you had Ambassador Taylor, the ambassador to Ukraine. He comes out and says he could not identify an impeachable offense, right? Testifies that under oath for the House. You have George Kent. He was the deputy uh, secretary for um, Europe and Eurasia. Uh, he's, he's brought in to testify as a primary witness. You know, the questions are asked about discussions on Ukraine. He said, I never spoke to the president of the United States. It's like, why are you even there as a witness? Because you're, you're testifying against the president. You never spoke to the president. You had Fiona Hill from the National Security Council. She said she, she who was very much on, on top of Ukraine policy, she said she never heard Trump reference anything on Ukraine. You had David Hale, who was who's one of the most in, influential figures in the State Department. He's the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, which is a hugely important position. Say he was unaware of any nefarious activities, I think was the phraseology he used, under oath. You had Colonel Vindman. Remember, this was, the, this was their lead witness. This was the guy who was going to basically make the whole case for, for why Trump had committed quid pro quo, um, you know, impeachable offenses. And he says he saw no basis for any allegation of bribery, um, which in essence would be, you know, withholding that money in exchange for some political uh, consideration or, or support. You had Ambassador Volker, who was the ambassador to NATO. He said straight up under oath, there was no quid pro quo. Okay, so those are like those are the witnesses that House Democrats brought forward. Those aren't the you know Republicans weren't able to really bring forward witnesses. One of the one of the most legitimate criticisms that's now being brought out by the president's attorneys in in the Senate trial is the fact that they weren't able to um, question witnesses under oath. Republicans they weren't able to bring forward other witnesses that would contradict these uh, allegations or support the president's position. And then you have this final witness, Tim Morrison, who um, was a senior player on Russia and European affairs, um, who was on the call, right? So he's like, in my judgment, like the one fact witness who's actually qualified. Like none of these people are on the call. Tim Morrison's on the call. He said, I was on the call. There was nothing wrong. You know, so it, like this is the issue that they t chose. They've been talking about impeachment since before the president was inaugurated. Uh, I, I took questions from European media and, and elsewhere about impeachment on the president, even before it was inaugurated on the emoluments clause. And on, um, then, of course, the Mueller investigation, other issues that came up, too, that they considered impeachment. They've been talking about impeachment from day one. That's always been the agenda. And now we have this that really amounts to nothing, you know, and you have these four facts that I think to settle the case definitively. Number one, uh, the, you know, Schiff never thought Trump was going to release the uh, transcript and he called his bluff on it. Right. So he gets up and says, it says this, it says that. Of course, none of that's in there. He once again misrepresented, i.e. lied about the contents of it. The president releases the transcript. It shows no quid pro quo in there. It asks for cooperation um, with our um, Department of Justice, which actually is a, is a, a, a congressional um, mandate. 
that exists there to be doing that. You had President Zelensky in Ukraine come forward and say, there was never any quid pro quo. No one ever told me to do something or the aid wouldn't be released. That's ridiculous. You had the fact that the aid was released, lethal aid to Ukraine, which Obama never sent. Obama sent humanitarian aid to Ukraine um, after Crimea, but he never did anything to help Ukraine defend itself. This president has authorized lethal defense, uh, serious uh, uh, security support that's designed to protect Ukraine from Russian aggression, help them defend and fight. He releases the aid exactly for that purpose. And by the way, that's aid for the next fiscal year. The current aid's already in their hands. And then finally, the fact that this investigation in the 2016 election and the Hillary Clinton server and into um, Hunter Biden's hugely lucrative agreement and, and relationship with Burisma, which to me is plagued with fraud in all probability, um, given that he had no experience in petroleum or no experience in Ukraine at all. It was clearly designed to buy influence with uh, U.S. policymakers. And, you know, there was no investigation launched. Ukraine never invested and never did any investigation on Hunter Biden. Ukraine never looked, it launched any formal investigation in 2016 election. And oh, by the way, this was something the Democrats were constantly clamoring about during the Mueller investigation. Why is the president not doing more to protect our elections from foreign influence? So here he is on call with President Zelensky, the uh, head of state of Ukraine, and says, you know, I want you to look into what was done in 2016. That to me seems entirely reasonable and appropriate. And, you know, what's the origin of this whole thing? You had, you know, somebody who heard something from somebody who doesn't support the president, doesn't support his policy agenda, almost resents the fact that the president engaged in Ukraine policy at all, because these guys just consider themselves like the island of authority on all this stuff. That's when they talked about the, of the alternative um, you know, communication uh, forum that existed on Ukraine, how outraged they were about it, you know, that you had other individuals in the administration, including the president, that were engaged in it. Well, yeah, the president runs our foreign policy. He can engage in any one of these things. He should be talking to heads of state. He should be developing our foreign policy in the ideal world. And these individuals who have the, the strongest opinions in the world about it because they've spent their whole life working on it and are in many ways closer to Ukraine than they are to the United States. Like, like the old joke goes, uh, I forget what the Secretary of State uh, who said it was, you know, there's no, no United States of America desk at the State Department. <laughs> you got a desk for hundreds of countries. Nobody focused on the United States of America. And this is kind of... Like you could see in this testimony, and I certainly could hear it, their outrage was not over what was perceived to be an impeachable offense or perceived to be some sort of subjugation of any U.S. law. It was over the fact that they didn't like Trump's kind of approach to Ukraine. And I just went through it. Those are their witnesses. They have nothing. Yeah. No, well, you know, and I, I feel like, to me, if you if you're gonna prove that that Trump was doing quid pro quo, trying to get Ukraine to investigate Biden for political reasons, that you would have to prove that there was nothing there, that there, that there was no reason to investigate, right? 
but they won't they won't touch that. And then the question is why? Because they know that more than likely there's some shady dealings going on. And and I feel like that's that's the problem with all of this is that all they're looking for is an angle to impeach. And that's that's all they've been doing with with Mueller, with every single scandal that comes out and it just rolls over, they move on to the next one and I guarantee you the Senate shuts this down. The House will be right back at it, you know, the next week trying to figure out the next way that they can. Re- can they re-impeach him? <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I think that it's not like it's as humorous as that sounds like. <laughs> that is the danger here is that you set a precedent that, you know, impeachment just becomes sort of like an ongoing political process where Congress is allowed to overrule the American people's selection of a president. You know, it becomes kind of like Britain, you know, forming, uh, you know, a vote of confidence in, in Congress because because the high crimes and misdemeanor, which is clearly, def- you know, defined it's in the Federalist Papers, it's in private communication. You can understand what the founders thought. They wanted it to include criminal behavior and abuses of a power of power, for, mostly for personal benefit. That was what they those were perceived to be impeachable offenses. They wanted Congress empowered with doing that, but they set a standard very high. And they were also conscious that this was not supposed to be utilized for political purposes, that ultimately the American people select our president. And that's the way it is. If you don't like the election, especially 10 months away from the next one, then go get a good candidate and get behind him and uh, go win the election. Don't try to remove him over specious uh, false um in a, you know, not meeting the standard of high crime and misdemeanor allegations. And this process is ridiculous. And frankly, uh, the Adam Schiff situation is hugely appalling to me. I mean, um, you know, nobody circles back with this guy ever. I, I've been dealing with this uh, for years now of having to counter his allegations at the time. So, for instance, when people would say to me, well, what he's Adam Schiff says, there's more than circumstantial evidence that the Trump campaign colluded with Russia. And I say, you know, I didn't work on the Trump campaign, but I was pretty close to it. And I can tell you they didn't collude with Russia. My judgment, maybe they kept some secret from me or something, but I'm pretty sure they didn't. No, no. Adam Schiff has access to these secret documents for secret classified information that you don't have access to. Okay, but nobody now you have this huge Miller report. You had over, you know, over over two dozen mostly Hillary Clinton supporting aggressive investigating attorneys who looked at it and they concluded no collusion. Nobody circles back and says, what's the accountability for making an allegation of that nature? It's almost defamatory and libelous. He you know, you have Schiff was the guy who said on the Nunez memo, remember? That it was completely inaccurate. He didn't know what he was talking about. Of course, that turned out to be untrue. He said, you know, we were, we, most of this has been about the FISA pro- process and, and what DOJ and FBI did to, to secure the surveillance warrant on Carter Page, which is kind of at the heart of the abuse of power here. Um, it was Schiff who said, nope, I looked at the FISA process. It's perfectly fine. Not, gee, we might want to look at it or there might be some issues there, you know, something maybe short of what we've been saying, but at least being, you know, at least inquisitive about some of these concerns. You know, then you have the IG report come out 17 times DOJ and FBI misrepresented, lied to FISA court um, on the Carter Page surveillance warrant. 
And then, of course, you had uh, Schiff say, we're going to hear from the whistleblower, right? You're going to hear from the whistleblower, not now, but you'll hear from the whistleblower. And then just in this peculiar fashion, these hearings start, and he says on, I believe, the opening day, I don't know who the whistleblower is. You know, when we have all this information, we know who it is, and we know for a fact that that he was meeting with shift staff. You know, so it's like these aren't like policy disagreements, in my judgment. This is like a man who has been out there fundamentally misrepresenting facts that are hugely important to the country. Okay, this is not even like a partisan thing, but this is like if you're sitting at home and you're only catching like a few minutes of, of the news at night and you're hearing someone who chairs the House Intel Committee saying there's more than circumstantial evidence that the campaign colluded with Russia. You know, any person who's not like as close to this as we are is going to put, say, well, something's going on. I'm not sure what, but there's something there and there's nothing there. And and, and the problem is there's no accountability whatsoever. Um, and then, you know, on the obstruction of Congress, it, the second part of it, you know, just quickly, I mean, that's like a euphemism for separation of powers because, you know, ultimately, and there's lots of historical precedent for this. One of the reasons House Democrats didn't want to go to the courts to command and compel the administration to cooperate on these issues was the fact that they knew they'd lose. I mean, the president has executive privilege. For instance, if I'm a speechwriter, as I was to a president, you can't I can't have congressional Democrats uh, hauling me before a committee, putting me under oath, asking me to testify, say, about what the hypothetical conversation was over this position or that position. Firstly, the only thing that matters is what was done. And secondly, um, the president, like a member of Congress, has the right to private counsel. You know, it'd be like it'd be like putting uh, Adam Schiff's legislative assistants and legislative director under under oath. You know, he's entitled to private counsel, which he secures once you break down that you've broken down the separation of powers it's at the core of american democracy yeah yeah which you know i i think you know kind of how i wanted to kind of close out the show a bit too is to kind of look forward to the 2020 election and you know and first i kind of briefly wanted to look at the, the the presidential election coming up you know obviously we know we understand the importance of this when you've got it's, you know, Trump versus, you know, whatever Democrats going to come out of the other side. I mean, what what what's your take on what's going on on the Democratic side? Because I just feel like it's so chaotic and they're going so far progressive, so far left. You know, I've, I've been posing the theory half jokingly that I almost feel like they're going they're going so hard the opposite direction that it's like it's almost like they want Trump to get reelected. It's, it's like, how can you be going that far left and that far progressive and not think you're you're not going to get any of the the middle ground moderate people? Well, because the people they're they're surrounded by, um, they're insular and they're surrounded by progressive activists. Uh, so, the party itself has always been a liberal party. Um, you know, I mean, maybe at one historical point it wasn't, but at least in our lifetimes it was liberal and it's become. You know, anywhere from progressive to outright socialist in its contemporary ideological definition, you cannot secure the, no the nomination for President of the United States as a Democrat without 
appeasing and bringing on board that constituency because it's the loudest constituency. It's the most active constituencies. And, you know, like when you go to the Iowa caucuses and try to win, it's about people on the ground. I mean, you know, that's how this thing gets done. It's not um, you can't bombard Iowa with TV ads and win that way. You know, that's more of a Super Tuesday strategy. That's kind of what the Michael Bloomberg approach is going to be, in my judgment. That's kind of what it's been to date, is he's going to put a lot of money in the TV ads, you know, forego these first few primaries and try to come in. So, it, you know, like, I don't know the way it's going to play out, but if you want my view, I, I think, like, you certainly see um, Sanders well-positioned to win the Iowa caucus, in my judgment. Um, you see Elizabeth Warren falling out of favor the last month. Uh, not exactly sure I can explain that, but I think it's more of a, a feeling of um, that uh, Sanders is the authentic progressives, maybe more authentic. Uh, I don't think that rift between the two of them was particularly helpful for Elizabeth Warren um, on, on the allegation that she made. And Joe Biden um, just, you know, I don't see him satisfying that progressive wing of the party, though he's going to clearly be a force. He's going to raise a lot of money. He's got name recognition, but he seems to me off his game. I don't understand. Well, I don't understand what his agenda is. I mean, it seems like it's Obama 2.0, which we just rejected in 2016. You know, to come out and basically talk about doubling down on Obamacare. I mean, I don't understand how that's going to possibly fly with the American people. Um, and, you know, all of the flawed policies that basically were rejected by these 63 million, I just don't see how that really works. And now you have on top of it, this cloud of, of ethics issues, which, you know, just to give you my perspective on it, this is the way the Democrats are sophisticated. They, they seem to have this approach of alleging what they in fact are guilty of. So, you know, um, did the Trump campaign collude with Russia? No, they didn't. But when Hillary Clinton went out and hired, you know, a British intelligence agent to go to Russia and, and you know, pay a bunch of people to develop this dossier that ends up being proved completely inaccurate and then floats it both to media and to um, intel agencies and is able to get warrants to actually spy on a campaign. Yep, that's that's kind of like pretty close to colluding on Ukraine when Joe Biden goes over to Kiev and says, you fire the prosecutor or that's looking into my son, or we're not releasing the aid. That's the quintessential quid pro quo, right? That's like, you don't even need to do much interpretation. So in turn, they come back, they allege this stuff of Trump. Two things happen. One, it puts Trump on the defensive, but it, you notice while we're going through this, it kind of becomes like childish to say, no, you're the one who did it. You know, it's like the rubber and glue thing. It sounds kind of difficult, but that's kind of like what is going on. Like we really need to be saying, no, it appears it was a quid pro quo by Obama. And that's where I come down to this Department of Justice. I mean, ultimately, the American people, I'm, you know, I just explained that there was this grassroots sentiment that contributed to Trump's victory that I sensed the American people are losing confidence in the justice process, the judicial processes of this country. It's one of the most dangerous things that could possibly happen. This Justice Department needs to restore the fact that it is independent, blind to partisanship. And that means that the wrongdoings that occurred under Hillary Clinton, under Obama, 
if they if they it need to be looked at if there's criminal components they need to be prosecuted and we need to get away from this permanent political class that is governing based on self-interest and politics and not the rule of law yeah no i i, I 100 totally agree now now once once we get past this democratic primary because i feel like to a certain degree everybody for the most part is kind of in lockstep on their positions. They just are kind of like nuanced on on what they're saying and that sort of thing, at least when we're looking at the debates. But when to, once we get to the general, do you think that the Democrats can come back and pull in some of the moderates? Because I feel like, again, they're going so far progressive, so far left. Do you think they could come in and pull, and pull away some of those blue-collar guys that voted for Trump that maybe they voted for Obama last time around? It's going to be promises versus real delivery. I mean, I've been working on kind of this presentation and um, a bunch of things related to Trump's accomplishments, but, you know, um, I'll just summarize some of these, you know, you know, GDP, never over 3%, one, one year under Obama, he's 2.9 and 18. I mean, Trump's pushing 3%. So it's just a matter of time until he gets there. Unemployment, 5.6% in 2014, down to 35 essentially full employment in the country. Inflation, 2.9 and 17, down to 1.8, despite spending, which you think would have inflationary pressure. Real median income, uh, $2014, $56,969, up to $63,179. So that's like more or less outpacing inflation. Real wage growth up 1.3 versus 0.4. Mortgage rates down incrementally. Price of gasoline down from 336 a gallon to 260 number of uninsured in the country despite the repeal of the mandate right that that was supposed to contribute to this great uninsured crisis 35.7 million in 2014 now 30.1 million in 2018 so like a clip of five and a half million people there off the uninsured ranks why because we're putting more people to work and they get insurance that way because that's you know by the way that's pro healthcare too which, which we don't talk about. So in my judgment, you got a president who's going to be able to run on saying, uh, despite all of the opposition to the swamp, I am doing what I told you I would do. I'm going to continue to do what I told you would do, I would do. You know, the American Make a Great is not, again, is not just a bumper sticker. It's a real tangible agenda that's comprised of a whole series of initiatives and we're checking them off as we go. And I just think that becomes a really compelling story for him. Yeah. And, and then I think kind of transitioning a little bit too over, you know, because I mean, obviously the presidential elections are vitally important. But then we then we get into some of the congressional seats that, that are coming up as well. And those are just as important. But I feel like people in general don't really know who to vote for. Because, I mean, the only people that people actually, when, when you think about it, the names that they recognize are whoever's in office right now, right? And so, like, I know, like, like I had um, Deanna Lorraine on my podcast a few days ago who was going up against Nancy Pelosi. And out here in California, I don't know if a lot of people know, but you know, it's almost like a general uh, primary where it's just whichever the two top candidates are, no matter which uh, party they're from. And so from her, it's like there's her and then another Republican. And it's like people just look for the R. They don't necessarily know who is what. So as we're going into this side of the election, how do you recommend that people are moving forward in trying to decide, okay, how do we vote in more of the congressional side of things? Well, and it's the old that old saying, you know, uh, the American people hate Congress, but they love their congressperson. They always think their congressperson is, you know, Congress as an institution is horrible. They're doing all these bad things. They don't work for the American people. But my 
the guy or woman who represents my district he is the exception to the rule. And in large part, this is kind of what our Tea Party uh, healthcare forums, the, um, the the confrontation of members of Congress back in the district, why that was so important, is that these people go to D.C. They're all groupthink in line with the Democrat um, leadership, Schumer and Pelosi. Nobody's crossing them on impeachment or anything else. You know, the one Democrat who crossed them on impeachment in, in the House is now to change parties in the second district of New Jersey. So um, it's a lot of groupthink. Then they go back in their districts and they talk a whole different game. You know, they talk like, well, no, you know, we're working on, you know, reducing health. They, they go through like where the polling is, health care costs. We're trying to address that. Yeah, immigration, that's a real problem. We got to do maybe, maybe not a wall, but we got to do something. Meanwhile, they're doing nothing, doing nothing, doing nothing, doing nothing. Um, and uh, where do you start? Like, I, I feel there's these 31. Uh, congressional districts that are being they're held by Democrats that Trump won in 2016 over over Hillary Clinton. Few of them he won even pretty sizably. Well, that's a glaring contradiction politically that you would have you would that you would vote for Trump in the, in the 2016 presidential election and then simultaneously elect a member of Congress in the House who would go down there and vote for his impeachment and removal. I think those 31 are got to be priorities where uh, we go out and do it. Um, and I still don't think we're playing aggressively enough in primaries. You know, the um, party establishment gets behind these people in part because they're next in line. They, you know, they're not, and they're not always the most compelling candidates. Um, we got to continue the grassroots, you know, uh, engagement in the recruitment and support of candidates. And the best thing to do, like if you're going to uh, contribute financially or time on these races is don't give to like large institutions in DC, give directly to that candidate. So look, you know, if you want to say, look at those 31 districts, find the Republican that's running there and give directly that and grassroots things like, you know, the tea party movement and, uh, some of the other grassroots activism is how we're going to win this thing, um, in my judgment. So, um, and then, you know, we got to make, we got to make the argument, you know, like, so even in, it, it's got to be, I like the idea of running nationally. So a lot of people in this profession might look at a Republican running, in, you know, in the Bay Area against the, the you know, one of the wealthiest um, Democrats, and if not the wealthiest in Congress with a boatload of money to spend and say, that's totally unwinnable. Don't put a dime there. Don't put a second of energy there. But you know what? If her positions are as indefensible as we say they are, and if her inability to deliver for the people of San Francisco and that Bay Area is as bad as we know it is, that argument becomes compelling. And the argument alone can trump the lack of resources. And we've seen that over and over again, you know? I said we were going to remove Eric, remove Eric Cantor in, um, in Virginia. People said, you'll never do that. Look at all the money he has. But you know what? The, we made the case in that district in Virginia. He was removed. Um, a lot of these primary races that no one was paying attention to, I think it's one of the great accomplishments of the Tea Party movement to date, that they, once they've gotten engaged, they've been able to swing the balance and put candidates of principle into the nomination over people that were basically doing nothing. 
Mike Castle in Delaware. I couldn't tell you what he did. He was in there forever, you know. So the, everyone was upset that we defeated Mike Castle. But what did Mike? What did Mike Castle ever do? I mean, the guy. It was like decades of just him showing up and voting. However, they told him to vote. It was like, you know, um, weekend at Bernie's or something. They just push him around and he he do what the leadership would tell him to do. And there's too much of that. And we need to restructure. You know, final point is we need to restructure this system somehow. I mean, um, I get. As you can imagine, I interact with a lot of candidates, and everyone feels like they're going to go to Washington and change the world. I, I tell them, like, look, it's like any other job. You go down there, your your boss, unfortunately, sadly, despicably even, is the leadership of the party, not your district. So once you go down there, you know, it's like you can question some things. You can suggest some different approaches. But ultimately, you know, if Pelosi, Schumer, uh McConnell, McCarthy, say this is the way it is. That's kind of the way it is. But I'm not sure that's like the best system in the world because that becomes that contributes to this hardened partisanship. You know, we should have a system where a member of Congress can feel free to go out down there, sponsor legislation, support initiatives, speak the mind of his district, be a representative of his district, not a representative of groupthink. Yeah, well, I, you know, and I think one way of of doing that to a certain degree is going back to the way that the system used to be back in the day. And if I remember, if I'm remembering my history class correctly, but it used to be where the House was voted on by the people and the Senate was vo- was sent by the the state legislatures, essentially, right? And I feel like that that was a good way to where you had both both chambers of Congress were representing, you know, one was representing the state, one was representing the people of the state. And I feel like that, to a certain degree, kind of helped at least some with the accountability, whereas right now, both both basically sections are looking for re-election constantly all the time, as opposed to just being accountable to their constituents to a certain degree. And, you know, and money drives, unfortunately, these races to a large extent, even though I said, you know, you could, good ideas can win, they can win. But, you know, just imagine uh, in the case of the woman you just mentioned, who I think I live mm-hmm. right against Nancy Pelosi. Do you imagine going out with anyone who's trying to um, cater favor with Washington, D.C. and say, hey, um, how about throwing in the, um, the maximum to my campaign against Nancy Pelosi? They sit there and go, you know what? You lose and she's going to take it out on me. You know, it's not just I don't think you're going to win. But you think you think these Democrats aren't going through the roles of donors and what industries are affiliated with and taking punitive steps? Of course they are. And it, it's created a very dangerous climate of political intimidation where um, donors and particularly donors affiliated with, uh, you know, industry sectors are, you know, terrified to challenge incumbents. It's too difficult to beat an incumbent right now. And that's bad for democracy, too. We need to make these races like legitimate races. In reality, a very small percentage of them, certainly less than 20 percent, maybe less than 10 percent are really considered viably competitive. Yeah, well, you know, and I think that that's kind of where Trump came in. And he kind of broke that bro- broke that apart to a certain degree from his end, in the sense of he came in and basically kind of like said, "Screw it, I'm just I'm just going to do it myself." 
and take on everybody. And I feel like to a certain degree, I feel like that's kind of what we need. We need a little bit more disruption in the sense of coming in and breaking away all these like hidden rules and secret rules and, you know, just saying, okay, you're going to punish me. I don't really care. I'm just going to go ahead and do what I believe is right. You know, obviously I didn't like the outcome of the house elections in 2018, but it's also going to be that when you have a change of that magnitude, that that doesn't just mean that nothing gets done for two years. And, and by the way, I'm not being hypocritical about this either, because, you know, like Obama in, in Missouri famously said, hey, these Tea Party guys want to come meet with me and talk about entitlement spending on doors wide open. Come on. You know, we took them up on that, attempted to work with them, attempted to reach out to them. And they had no interest in, in, in having any serious conversations about about policy cooperation. And, uh, you know, the same, unfortunately, was true with Democrats is they say, hey, look, I really understand what you're saying. I kind of even agree with you to some extent, but the way it is, I can't like cross the leadership here. And uh, so you end up, what what happens is you end up just sort of becoming more insular and not even having these important discussions that we, that you and I, I think both feel need to be having across the aisle where we say, here's the problem. Like what is a range of solutions that we can identify? And then, you know, how do we compromise if necessary to, um, develop a real serious solution that's going to work. Yeah, you know, I don't like that. That's the way the system is supposed to work, and it's not working that way. Yeah, that's true. Now, uh, now for people that are kind of like following along and they they want like more info, they want to follow like what you're saying, they want to they want to know what you're writing that sort of thing. How can people kind of follow you and kind of keep up on everything that's that you're up to? Um, the two big technology establishment platforms of Twitter and Facebook are probably the best ways on um, Twitter, I'm Michael Johns, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-J-O-H-N-S, one one word. And on Facebook, I'm uh, Michael Johns uh, Tea Party. And those are uh, the two best ways. I provide a lot of political updates, a lot of commentary on issues, um, suggestions on tactics and candidates and approaches that we can take. Um and I uh, would encourage uh, people to follow me on those two forums. Yeah, definitely, definitely do that. And I'll, and I'll put the I'll put the links below uh, when we uh, post everything on uh, like SoundCloud, iTunes, all that kind of stuff as well. And uh, but yeah, thanks so much for coming on. I, I really appreciate. It. I really enjoyed this. So it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thanks for all you're doing. I appreciate it. Of course, thank you. So and again, everybody, get, like, subscribe, all the good stuff. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys next time. The holidays are a moment of togetherness and joy and a reminder of how tradition creates happy and fulfilled communities. Make this holiday season patriotic with a visit to National Harbor and its stunning new Spirit Park. Marvel at one of the largest American flags in the region and beautiful displays of American art. Make this holiday season the most meaningful of all at National Harbor. Learn more at nationalharbor.com dash spirit park. HIV epidemic is not over. HIV is still here. The face of HIV is so diverse. The biggest thing to reduce HIV stigma is just to talk about it. Testing and PrEP and HIV treatment and how effective it is today. 
Undetectable equals untransmittable. Whether you're positive or negative, there's not a wrong door. Whether it's testing or whether it's treatment, do it for you, Montgomery County. Learn more about HIV testing, treatment, and prevention at doitforyoumc.org.